Are you thankful this morning that God doesn't make mistakes? That's a truth that we cling to. Children's Church can be dismissed at this time. Uh, Nate and Jared are headed down there with them, so it's going to get rowdy, I guarantee it. But they'll have fun, and uh, looking forward to hearing from them when they're done. Mark chapter 1, again, is where we'll be this morning. As I said last week, I would encourage you to, uh, to bring your Bible to church as we go through the book of Mark together so you can uh, follow along as we read. It will be on the screen, but as I said, there's something about having a copy in your hands. And then I would encourage you to take notes, uh, bring, bring a, a notebook with you, and just uh, as God speaks to you, that you would write those things down. And uh, who has a, a problem with remembering ever? Uh, I go to the store all the time and forget three quarters of the list. And so I'm, I'm a note taker, uh, in part just so I don't forget. And so I pray that, that we would take notes as we go through this together and that we would let God speak to us. And then the final thing is, uh, as we go through it, um, I, I'd like your feedback. Not in a, oh, that was amazing. I want feedback in the sense that, hey, let's think about this together. Let's talk about what we've heard in Scripture together um, so, that, so that we can grow together. When, when you bounce Scripture off of one another, guess what that does? It strengthens relationships, but it also strengthens your understanding of who God is and what Christ has done. And so I, I enjoy hearing from you as we go through books of the Bible together. I like to hear your thoughts and, and different takes and whatnot uh, on the chapter and verses that we're studying. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 is where we're going to be, and I do want to read it again. And then we'll, we'll jump in together and have a word of prayer. Starting in verse 1, the Bible says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed in camel's hair with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. God, we thank you again for your word. We pray this morning that you would use it to instruct us, to uh, convict us, God, to encourage us and comfort us and to make us uh, more like your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be hearers uh, who are ready to do the word, not just hear it and put it aside and never do anything with it. God, we pray today that you would be glorified through what's done in this place, through the singing, through the preaching, through the fellowship. May you get the glory that you deserve from it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was listening to a book this week, and part of it was outlining the, the many uh, lives of many men and women who have lived for Christ and died as martyrs uh, for the gospel. These stories, from a human perspective, are almost tragic, but from a kingdom perspective, they're incredible testimonies of faith. Living for Christ does not mean that you will die a martyr's death, but not living for Christ assures you that you will never have the privilege of doing so. Privilege? You may think that's a strange word to use, but that word characterizes the many lives of men and women who have died a death for Christ as they walked this world, letting Him be the one that guided them. Hebrews tells us that of these people, the world was not worthy of them. Paul tells us that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. 
Esther in the Old Testament realized that living for the purpose of God was of a far greater ambition than living for her own purposes. And so I think privilege is indeed the right word. And these who experienced this type of death were persuaded that Christ was worthy, not simply of their lives in a living sense, but he was worthy of them giving their lives as well. John the Baptist was one who understood this truth. John was called from his mother's womb. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, he wasn't just the last, but he was also the greatest of the prophets. John lived a life of peculiarity. To the onlookers who heard and believed his message, he was known as a powerful representation of who God was and what God was calling men to do. For the passerby who didn't understand his message, John was simply confusing. For the religious crowd who despised his message, John was disdained. But John didn't let either the applause of man or the threats from his critics get to him. He lived a steady life and continually in his life and death pointed people to the one who was greater than he. John loved Christ and he also lived for Christ. He was a testament that these two things must go together. To say that we love Christ and then not live for Christ is really something that cannot exist. And so as John lived his life, he didn't just speak his love for Christ with words, but he lived out his love for Christ with his day-to-day actions. John's life was not long. He lived to only be about 35 years old. His bold message did not set well with the ruling officials of his day. And eventually John's life was taken from him by beheading. And his head was served on a silver platter to a woman whose family was engrossed in sin. As we think about John's story, we ask ourselves, was it worth it? Wouldn't it have been better for John to have left these people alone? Wouldn't it have been better for John to water down the message that he preached? Wouldn't it have been better for John to have held back in this moment when he knew that his life was on the line? Friends, I would submit that for John, and from John's perspective, it couldn't have gone any better. He died doing what he was called to do. And if we think about the time when we depart this world, may those words also be true of us. The big idea this morning is this, a life lived and given for the cause of Christ is a beautiful representation of a person who has truly understood the sacrifice that Christ gave for them. John lived the Jesus-only life, and in his death, he had no regrets. And so as we go through this text today, I pray that we will examine our own lives to see if we are living for the Christ who died for us. The first thing we see this morning is a prophecy fulfilled in verses 2 and 3. And I I want to say as we begin, I preached this not long ago as we were going through the Christmas season. Uh, But I pray that we wouldn't let what has been said uh, in in the recent past uh, make us think that we've, we've known it all or that we understand it all, but that we would let the Spirit of God work through us in a new way. Do you believe that God works through His Word every time it's open? God's word is open, and let's, let's allow our hearts to receive the work that he wants to do. I promise it's not the same message I preached back in December. But the first thing we see is a prophecy fulfilled. In verses 2 and 3, Mark says this, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
John's life was peculiar in the sense that he lives as the last Old Testament prophet, but he also lived as a contemporary of Jesus Christ. They were indeed cousins, and though we don't know how much they interacted in their their day-to-day life, we do understand that it's obvious they had some relationship beyond their roles in redemptive history. Mark gives us some insight into this idea that John's role was spoken of long before he ever arrived on the scene. And this reveals to us that John was not on a self-willed mission, preaching a message about himself, but he was on a mission from God to prepare a way for the Lord and to make the way of the Lord straight. In Malachi 3.1, the Bible says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, the Bible says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Both of these references in the Old Testament are speaking to the one who would come as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And who was that man? It was none other than John the Baptist, the one who we are speaking of today. But it wasn't just the Old Testament that gave prophecy to this idea of John the Baptist coming on the scene. But in Luke chapter 1, we see the angel of the Lord uh, visits a, a couple and tells them that they're going to have a son who would be the forerunner of Christ. In Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17, the Bible says this, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. I want to stop right there and say what a testimony these people had. That they did not just think of what God said in a casual way, but they took it very seriously to live those things out. Evan talked about this on Christmas morning and did a great job with that. Continuing in verse 6, the Bible says, and they, uh, verse 7, And they had no child because the Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. I think that would be my response as well. But the angel of the Lord said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall turn uh, turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before them in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, to the, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so the Old Testament speaks of this idea that John the Baptist was coming to prepare a way for the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the New Testament speaks to Zacharias and Elizabeth saying, hey, guess what? You're going to have a son and his job is going to be to prepare a way for the Lord. This is a total side note, but I want you to think about something for a moment. Think of Zacharias and Elizabeth, how long they wanted a child. And what does it say? That she was barren. 
barren. Desperately wanting something that she knew God could give. And she was barren. But when did God give her the gift of that child? When he deemed it was the right time. And John the Baptist came on the scene just before Jesus Christ came on the scene. And their ministry roles go hand in hand. That John would preach the reality that Jesus was here. And Jesus would come on the scene to be the fulfillment of all that John said. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And so as we think about Zacharias and Elizabeth, they had opportunity to stop being faithful because they could have deemed that God was not giving them what was best for them. But what did they do instead? They faithfully followed God. Regardless of what God gave them or didn't give them, they faithfully followed God. And in the end, they saw what they wanted fulfilled as God gave them a child. So does that mean that we're going to get everything we want? No. But what it means is this, that we faithfully follow God regardless of what God, if God gives us what we want in this life or not. But John was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. As I said, he was not just a man on a self-willed mission, but he was a man who was living the mission of God. And in doing so, he was a fulfillment of prophecy. His job was to go before the Lord, to prepare a people for the Lord, to see their hearts turn from lies and to truth. And Isaiah tells us that he was to make the way of the Lord straight. Mark uses that same language as he quotes the Old Testament. And it's a significant thing because who was Mark writing to? He was writing to the Romans. And what was one of the things that the Romans were known for? Making roads. And so when Mark says to make his path straight, he would have been tying what was said in the Old Testament to the readers that were reading his letter in the present, and he would have been relaying this information that as God had a plan back in the Old Testament, God's plan is still true today. And as Mark relays to us this idea that he would make the path of the Lord straight, that he would prepare a way for the Lord, he's relaying that the way to Christ would not be a confusing one. It would not be a difficult one to understand, but it was straight and simple, and it would lead to Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so as John lived out his life, we see that he lived out prophecy as he fulfilled the things that were spoken of him in the past. As we think about John, we understand that as we see him live, it proves that he was very deliberate in the way that he lived. He was very deliberate in the message that he preached. He was very disciplined in the things that he did. He was led by the Spirit of God, Mark tells us, from before the time that he was even born. And John's life is indeed an example for us to follow. He lived the Word of God. We may think... For a moment today that this point has nothing to do with us, but friend, as John lived the word of God, understand this truth that we are called to live out the word of God as well. That we don't simply pick and choose which portions are are settling well with us, but we simply live out the word of God. John's life was not filled with ease. If you read his, the testimonies of him in the Gospels, you understand that he faced trials, he faced imprisonments, he faced abandonment. Many even think that the reference to John being in the wilderness was not simply that that was the place that he lived, but it's a reference to this idea that because his parents were so old when they had him, that John could have possibly been orphaned and, and his parents died before he was even of age to be an adult. And so John's life was not simple. But that didn't pull John off the idea of living out the word of God for his life. 
And friends, when our lives are difficult, when we face trying times, when we face difficulties, that must secure our thoughts even in a greater way that we are going to live out the Word of God. And as John lived his life, we see that he lived with no regrets. And as we read about his life leading to the point that he died by beheading, we see that John also died with no regrets. And so the first thing we see this morning is that John was a fulfillment of prophecy. That the one who was spoken of that would come and prepare the way of the Lord was now on the scene and he was doing the work that God had called him to do and he did it faithfully until the end. And what an example that is for us to follow. A prophecy fulfilled. The second thing we see this morning is that he had a purposeful ministry, excuse me, a purposeful ministry. In verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, and John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so what was John's life like? Well, he lived in the wilderness. We're going to see that he wore and ate odd things. But what was the message of his life? John preached and he baptized. He preached, and he baptized. We understand the content of his message as we get down into the latter part of this section that we're going to look at this morning, but I want to focus on this reality that John's ministry was purposeful, that everything that he did was pointing to something greater than himself. All of this was to point people to the reality that Jesus was coming. He was preparing the way of the Lord. He was showing people their true need for a Savior and then pointing them to the one who could save them. And as it is in our day, people in John's day were looking for something other than Christ for salvation. But that didn't pull John off his message. He simply preached Christ. That there was one coming who was greater than him who could give them hope in this life and in the life to come. Now, as we see John's ministry taking place in the wilderness, we see that many from Judea and Jerusalem came to hear him. And we know that John's primary ministry as he came on the scene was to the Jews. It was to point them to the reality that a Savior had come. Now, many Jewish people thought they were all set because their father was Abraham, and we see that played out for us in Matthew chapter 3, that, that they're, the, the Pharisees are criticizing John because their father is Abraham. They don't need this message that John is preaching. But John tells them in that passage, hey, just because your father is Abraham does not mean that you are a child of God in, the, in a spiritual sense. John goes on and tells them that just because your father is Abraham doesn't mean that you are spiritually related to God. And in fact, God doesn't need you. He could go as far as raising up children for himself from the what? From the stones. And so John's message to them was very pointed, that just because they were the ethnic people of God, the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, did not mean that they were the children of God in a spiritual sense relating to Jesus Christ and the salvation that he provided. And so Paul hammers this idea home in Romans chapter 9 because he tells us that not all who are of Abraham are of God. In Romans 9 verses 1 through 8, he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Ghost that I have a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for I wish that myself were accursed from Christ 
for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption of the glory and of the covenant and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they, all the chil- are, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. What's Paul saying? Passages like that can be confusing. He's hammering home this idea that just because they were the ethnic people of God, the ones that God chose in the Old Testament to display his glory to the world, does not mean that in a spiritual sense they are God's children. Christ changed things. There were many in the Old Testament that were of Israel, but they did not believe in God. They did not look for the coming of the Messiah. They rejected the truths that God revealed to them. And you know what Paul says? I wish that I were accursed, that I was separated from Christ, so that these who think they're all set in their religiousness could actually come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ. Understand today, friends, there are many in the world who think they are all set from a spiritual perspective. May we have the heart of Paul. Paul was so burdened for these people that he says he wishes he was accursed, that he was separated from Christ, that they could know Christ. May that be our heart as well. And so John lived out a purposeful ministry. As he came to the Jewish people, the ethnic people of God who thought they were all set, he wanted them to understand that just because they had a history of of God dealing with them did not mean that they were exempt from the wrath of God to come. But they needed to prepare for that day. And so John preached repentance and he preached baptism and it was all preparing the way of the Lord, telling them to look to the one who is greater, look to the one who is the fulfillment of all that was said in the Old Testament and put your faith and trust in him. And so he was calling them to stop resting in their false sense of security and rest in the person of Christ. I like what John Piper has to say about this. When a Jewish person received John's baptism, it was a radical act of individual commitment to belong to the true people of God based on personal confession and repentance and not on corporate identity with Israel through birth. They needed to look to Christ. So John's ministry, while we understand it was positive in the sense that he was pointing people to the one who was coming, Let us also understand that John's ministry was negative in a sense for many people because it was disrupting all they ever thought they they understood. He was pointing them to the reality that they needed a savior. And so his baptism that he performed, it was not the sundry washings of the Old Testament and it was different from the baptism that we practice today for Christ had not yet died for our sins. And if you're confused about that, Paul tackles this idea in Acts chapter 18. When he meets Apollos, what was the only baptism that Apollos knew? John's. And then in chapter 19, as Paul goes on and he begins ministering, they said, we've received the baptism of John, but they had not received the Spirit yet. Why? Because they hadn't believed in Christ. And so what does Paul tell them? Believe in Christ and be baptized. And so John's baptism was not our baptism today. It was distinct and it served a purpose for a period of time. And the baptism that we 
used today, that we symbolize today, is different because it represents the death, burial, and resurrection, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so John's ministry was purposeful. He was calling a group of people who thought they were all set in their religiousness to turn from what they could do and to turn to the one who was the fulfillment of all that was written about in the Old Testament. We understand that John had a fruitful ministry. People came from all around to hear him and to see him and to be baptized of him. And as John had a fruitful ministry, we see that this was true because he chose to redeem the time. John knew that his ministry would not last forever. In fact, when people started to turn away from John and turn to Christ, what did John say? That's what's supposed to happen. He must increase and I must decrease. People need to run to him and and run from me. When John was in prison, he got a little nervous, didn't he? And said he, he sent some of his disciples to go out and say, is this the Christ or do we wait for another? And what does Jesus tell John's disciples? Go tell John again that the dead are raised to life and the blind receive their sight, that I am the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And John's messengers come back to him and they relay that truth. And John died in peace. Why? Because the Messiah had come. His ministry was purposeful. And friends, we have a purposeful ministry as well. I was thinking about this a lot yesterday and just thinking about how, how oftentimes the things that churches involve themselves in and with have no eternal impact. That can't be what we do as a church. Churches that get sidetracked by issues in the world. Friends, we have a greater message to preach than political hope or social hope or economic hope. We preach Jesus. And if we're going to have a fruitful ministry, then we must continue to preach that message day in and day out. Until when? Until Jesus calls us home. And what if we have doubts in our lives? Then we don't go to human philosophy to settle those doubts. We go to the Word of God. And when we go to the Word of God to settle our doubts, guess what we will have? We'll have a fruitful ministry that John had as well. Now, does this mean that by this year, next Sunday, we're going to have five services because we went to the Word of God? No. But what it does mean is this. At the end of our lives, we will hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Matt sent me a meme uh, yesterday, and it, it said, well done is, is for good and faithful servants, not for steaks. You shouldn't have your steak well done. It's, it's, sorry if that's lost on you. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> um, But isn't that what our desire should be to hear? That we live the life that God called us to live? And isn't that what John did? From before he was even out of his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Ghost and he followed the Holy Ghost until he died. So John had a purposeful ministry. He came to those who thought they were all set and said, you need to look to Christ. If you're here today, friend, and you think you're all set because of your religiousness, understand you need to look to Christ. It's not what you can do that brings salvation to your life. It's what Christ has done and that he came to die on the cross for your sins and for mine, to offer hope to the world. And the question that I have for you today is, have you put your hope in Jesus? If you haven't, then the truth is you will die lost in your sins. But if you have, can I encourage us to redeem the time as John redeemed the time? To to preach Christ and him crucified until God calls us home. The third thing we see this morning is appointed life. John had, in in verses 2 and 3, John had, he was a fulfillment of prophecy. 
In verses 4 and 5, he had a purposeful ministry. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see that John lived a pointed life. These verses again say, And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Imagine for a minute if somebody walked in the back doors and they were wearing camel's hair and they had a jar of honey and a bag full of locusts and they were dipping that locust in that honey and crunching on them as they walked down the aisle. I've heard people talk about how this wasn't locust as in we know it as the animal that hops around. It was some sort of seed or fruit that they would have eaten. Can we just understand that it was real locusts, right? John was a very different individual. If we saw somebody walk down the aisle like that, we would probably get a little nervous, right? Who is this guy? We'd be putting our jacket down beside us instead of picking up our jacket so that he could sit near us. Uh, we'd put our arm around our wife and hold her a little closer. Why? Because we don't know what this guy's going to do. And as peculiar as John was or is in our day, understand he was peculiar in his day as well. That most people weren't walking around doing the things that he was doing. I, I, I think I said this at Christmas time, but I bet John had a big bushy beard, right? Like he, he, he had a beard before beards were cool. And there he was walking around in the wilderness, preaching a message that many did not understand, preaching a message that many did not want to hear, but preaching a message that to those who heard it was life-changing. Why? Because he pointed them to Christ. John lived a pointed life. I'm not going to stand here today and say next Sunday that we should all come in wearing camel's hair. I don't even know where you buy camel's hair, right? Uh, and, and I'm certainly not going to be a proponent of eating locusts and wild honey. That just doesn't sound... Maybe the honey part, Paul can hook us up with some honey. Uh, but, but the locust part, yeah, I'm good on that. Uh, uh, so I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were talking about their baby eating all these little ladybugs that are around their house. Maybe they're a prophet coming. I don't know. Dip those things in some honey, and we'll see what happens. But John lived a pointed life. When people saw him, they saw that he was different. When they saw the, the word or heard the words that came from his mouth, they realized he was not living for himself, but he was living for the glory of another. And friend, how do we do that in 2023? We live out the words of God. That we take seriously the things that God has given us in his word. That we live differently from the rest of culture and the rest of society. That we don't allow our emotions to control us or dictate us or, or determine what we do in this life. We live for him and him alone. We use the resources that God has given us for his honor and his glory. One of the things I love about coming to the business meeting is seeing how much money has flown through this church. You know what that shows? That there's people who have a desire to live a pointed life, to use their resources for the honor and glory of God, to make a difference in this world, but also to make a difference in the world to come. John lived a pointed life. He was not one that, that people would have readily invited to their homes. He was not one that people would have readily attached themselves to outside of a spiritual work of God in them. And so in verse 6, we see that John stood out. He was clothed in that camel's hair. He wore a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. I would encourage you, friends, I would encourage myself to take the Word of God seriously, to see where I'm not sticking out because I have made my Christian life too comfortable, 
to take the word of God and say, if this is how God has called me to live, then this is how I'm going to live. Will people notice it? They will. Did they notice John? Well, they're writing about what he wore and ate, so I would say they noticed it pretty well. May we take serious the word of God as well. In verse 7, we see that John preached continually and consistently one message. He says, there's one who's coming that is greater than I am. There is one that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and unloose his sandals. And we touched on this at Christmas, and I want to just hit this point again. In that day, when a rabbi uh, would have a following of people, they could ask them to do anything, and the people would be willing to do it. But there was one thing that they wouldn't go as far as asking, and that was for the servant or the, the student to stoop down and unloose his sandals. And you know what John is saying? He's not saying, I'm not willing to do that. John's saying, I'm not worthy to do that. Even if Jesus were to ask me to do that, I would count myself unworthy to stoop down and unloose the sandals off of his feet. John realized that he was not the mighty one, but Christ was. John realized that there was one who deserved glory, and it was not him, it was Jesus. It's interesting in our world today that when maybe in a political realm or, or some social realm, that if, if somebody is being promoted, oftentimes the one that's doing the promoting will make the message about themselves in some way. I get to be this type of person. I get to promote this type of person. I get to be a part of this type of thing. And you know what John said? It's not about me at all. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is why in John's gospel, when John saw Jesus coming, he directed the eyes of the people off of himself and on to Christ by saying, Behold the Lamb of God, which shall take away the sins of the world. This is why he cried from his heart, He must increase and I must decrease, because everything he did pointed others to the one who could save them. And then in verse number 8, we see that John preached truth. He said, I have indeed baptized you with water. John was relaying this idea that, that this baptism was not of salvation. He says, but there was one that shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, pointing to the work that God would do in those people who believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul drives this point home about the Spirit being us, being a sign of salvation in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. He says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. What is Paul saying? That if you have the Spirit, it's proof that you are one of his. And one of the proofs of the Spirit is that you don't live according to the flesh, but you live according to the Spirit. And one day that Spirit is going to quicken your dead soul, your body, and, and reunite you in heaven with Christ. And so John was calling people to live in a different way. And in part, he did that by the life that he lived as he pointed everyone to the person of Jesus Christ. We still may wonder at times, what does it mean to live the pointed Christ? What does it look like to live the pointed Christ? I want to turn to Colossians chapter 3, and I would encourage you to turn there. It will be on the screen. And I, I was trying to find a good place to stop in this chapter, and I couldn't. And so I'm going to read the whole chapter, and I would encourage you to follow along, because Paul is writing about the fruit of salvation in the life of a believer. 
Paul's not saying this is what you do to be saved, but he's saying if you are saved, if you are a child of God, then this is what your life should look like, and it will be drastically different from the world around you. Starting in verse 1, Paul says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying this list of things that I have just given you are things that should not be in your life if you are a child of God. And Paul says, in fact, these are the very things and reason that God is going to pour out his wrath on the children of disobedience. So understand, there's a difference in the way we live and the way the world lives. He continues in verse 7. In the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, but now uh, ye also put off all these, anger and wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is no, neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye are also called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. And so, friends, if we want to understand what it means to live a pointed life, then let's live out passages like Colossians 3. That when life is hard, when people have wronged us, what do we do? We forgive because that's what God has done for us. When, when our children are, are disobedient, let's not provoke them to anger, but let's encourage them in the truth. Does that mean you don't discipline your children? It doesn't mean you don't discipline your children, but it doesn't mean you don't take it over. It does mean you don't take it over the edge, that you live a life of integrity before them. It means that we forbear one another. It means that above all things, we put on charity, which binds us together. It means that we allow the peace of God to rule in our hearts in a world that is not filled with peace. It means that we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, that we encourage ourselves in the truths of God's word, and that we do all things to the glory of God. Friends, that's the life that John lived. 
And this is the life that God has called us to live as well. Paul was very clear that this life in Christ is to be very different from life without Christ. And I pray that as John lived, we would also live in pointing people to the one who has saved us. Friends, has has Christ made a difference in your life? Two of you, wow, that's encouraging. Friends, has Christ made a difference in your life? If he has, then let's live that difference out. We don't determine who is going to be saved. I, I can't tell you who is saved, right? From a, from a spiritual perspective, God knows those things. But what does God want to use? He wants to use our lives to point others to him. Regardless of the decision they make, we live for Christ. We point others to him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's a quote from C.T. Studd. I'd never heard that quote before, and I found it as I was looking up uh, something else that I'm going to read to you in a moment. But the words of that quote are, are very true. If Christ died for me and gave the ultimate sacrifice in laying down his life so that I could be redeemed, then there is no sacrifice that's too great for me to make for him. C.T. Studd is, is more well-known for his poem, Only One Life Will Soon Be Passed, Only What's Done for Christ Will Last. I want to read this to you in closing, and I would encourage you to listen to the words as they're read and take them to heart. He says this, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon with its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only what one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world, now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be. 
if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Friends, only one life will soon be passed. And may we believe the solemn truth that only what's done for Christ will last. Is anybody planning on dying today? I don't think so. Truth is, even though we know death is coming, none of us know when the hour will be. And so what does that mean? It means that our desire should be to live for Christ day in and day out. That his name would be known in this place and around the world. Why? Because only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. The big idea this morning was this. A life lived and given for the cause of Christ is a beautiful representation of a person who has truly understood the sacrifice that Christ gave for them. John lived the Jesus-only life, and in his death he had no regrets. As I think about my four kids, and I think about the future, the truth is I don't know what I'll have to pass on to them. None of us do. Even if we have made wise investments and we think we're going to give our kids the world, we understand that things can change very rapidly. But you know what one thing I can give my kids? An example of what it means to live for Christ. And so whether I have the riches of the world or I live in poverty all the days of my life, my desire is that when my kids look to the example of Brianna and I, that they'll see that we lived with that motto, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, I ask us today, will we endeavor to live through the power of the Spirit a life that brings glory to Christ? Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You know of Him. You've heard the stories. You've even read the Word yourself. But you don't have a personal relationship with Him. Can I encourage you today as you think about yourself to realize that in yourself, that is in your flesh, in your ability, then you have no hope of eternal life with God in heaven. But God sent his son to be the savior of the world that all who look to him will be saved. The Bible tells us that all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. What does that mean? It means that no matter how many wrongs you've done or how few wrongs you've done, you need a a savior. And if you come to him, he will in no wise cast you out as you repent of your sins and turn to him by faith. I have found in talking with people about Christ that there's usually two positions that people take. I've done too much wrong. Or the other side of the coin is, I don't need a savior. I'm good enough on my own. Friends, both of those truths will lead you to an eternity in hell separated from God forever. So will you come to him today? Will you trust in the work that he has done for you? Will you take the message of John and apply it to your own heart that your religiousness is not good enough to save you, but there's a God who loves you, who desires to save you? Will you come to him? For those here today who are Christians, I ask us the question, will we live for him? We have been called to live for Christ 
And as we take an inventory of our lives, as we match our lives up with the Word of God, I would ask us this question, how are we doing? And you say, well, I can see the faults and the failings in my life, and and I'll never be able to do this. Friend, we have been promised that we can do this as we live through the power of the Spirit. So in your flesh, you're right, you will fail. But because of the gift of God in salvation of filling us with His Spirit, then we can live out the Word of God. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, we live the words of Paul in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's message is you can't do it in your own strength, but through the Spirit of God, you can. And maybe today we're here And in our hearts and mind are many excuses as to why we could not live for Christ. Maybe we think it'll be too costly. Maybe we think it'll be too difficult. Maybe we're worried that our needs won't be met. But let me remind you of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24 through 33. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather they into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow be cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe ye, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Friends, we often make excuses as to why we can't serve Christ. And I tell you, in that passage, Jesus takes away every excuse that we could make. He'll take care of us. He'll provide for us. It doesn't mean that we're going to have everything that everyone else has. It means that he is going to give us enough to make it through the day. And know what happens when you have enough to make it through the day? You become dependent on the giver of the one who gives you enough to make it through the day. And isn't it true that God wants us to be dependent on him? And so John lived a life for Christ. It led to his death, but I'm convinced that even in his death, John had no regrets because he believed with all his heart that he lived for the only one who was worth living for. As we close our service this morning with a song, I pray that we would think through what we've heard, that we would reflect on the words of God in the Bible, and that we would respond as he leads us. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, then reflect on this truth that without Christ, you will spend eternity separated from him forever in a place called hell and respond by coming to faith in Christ as the Spirit leads you to do. For those of us who believe, let us understand the life that God has called us to 
And let's respond to him by living that life, not for our glory, but for his, knowing that he will provide for our need every step of the way.